I will uh, tell you a small confession that most of my life I have mislabeled the flower of a daffodil by calling it a different name. I, for a long time, I really thought uh, that it was a different flower, and I was confused between two flowers. And so some of you may know that daffodils actually are narcissus plants, and some of you may not have known where that name came from, uh, but it comes from that Greek story of a guy who fell so in love with himself and with his image uh, that he drowned, and the flower bloomed in, its, in where he died. Um, and so while that may surprise you, it probably doesn't surprise you that the rise of narcissism in America has been happening really since the 70s. And I would say you go back to what we would call the greatest generation and how they uh, were so much about their, their, their nation. They were so willing to sacrifice and give of themselves for the betterment of their nation and, and for the world. And how we have really kind of flipped that switch uh, and we've really become so individualistic and so about ourselves uh, that really since the 1970s we've seen this massive increase in our own self-interest. And just to be clear, a narcissist is someone who is excessively interest in, or has an excessive interest in themselves. They're someone who has this overinflated ego and they think of themselves as way more important uh, than they either actually are or they should be. In most cases, they think they're superior uh, to everyone who's around them. And I like that video. And part of the reason I showed that video is because uh, sometimes we think of uh, pretty much, uh, let me back up, probably all of us could think of somebody in our life who fits that category, who, who has this overinflated ego, who kind of acts better than everybody else. And uh, we, we kind of section everybody off in that category, but we forget about those vulnerable narcissists, those ones who are, are quiet narcissists, that, that they just have this sense of entitlement to themselves. And so anybody who kind of threatens their entitlement is a threat to them, right? They may not be as aggressive. They may not be as showy about their narcissism, but it's still the same kind of situation. And so uh, this morning, we're going to look at one of the three guys in the book of Third John, and a few weeks ago, um, that we started, the, we looked at the first several chat or verses of Third John. We met a guy named Gaius, and Gaius was calm. He was he was all right, living second. He was all right, being second. Uh, but this week, we're going to be introduced to a guy in verses nine through eleven uh, that is the exact opposite. All right, and today we would label him as a total narcissist or a toxic narcissist, and uh, he's somebody who demands first place. He demands the attention of everybody else, and so we want to look at him for a few reasons this morning. One, uh, we want to look at kind of the traits. What is it that makes him uh, a toxic narcissist? And we want to do that not just because we want to look and judge somebody else, but because if we're honest and we have this moment of honesty here between us and the Holy Spirit and here between us and ourselves, then we might find that we actually possess some of these qualities ourselves, that maybe we fall a little bit under these categories ourselves. So we want to identify kind of these traits and, and characteristics of them. We also kind of want to see what the effects of them are. What happens when people become so absorbed in themselves and so uh, inflated that they can't see around themselves? What does that do, uh, not just to themselves, the people around them, but what does that do to the church? And then finally, we want to see kind of the end. What is it that causes a person to act this way? What causes a person to possess these kind of traits and these personalities? So we're going to kind of work through those three things of, what are the traits? What's the 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 or what's the the effects of those traits? And then uh, kind of the uh, end or what causes these traits to start with? And so, uh, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Third John. The text we're going to read this morning is a small text, verses 9 through 11. And my prayer is that as we read through this text, we will use it as kind of this 
uh, self-examination, this self-reflection to see if any of what is written here really does reflect on us. So if you've got your Bibles, 3 John, uh, there's only one chapter, so we'll start in verse 9 and read through verse 11. Um, and you can follow along in your copy of the Bible or the words on the screen beside me. But uh, 3 John, verse 9, says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephus who loves to have first place among them, does not receive us. This is why, if I come, I will remind him of the works that he is doing, slandering us with malicious words. And he is not satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome the brothers himself, but he even stops those who wants to do so and expels them from church. Verse 11, Dear friends, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you that your name is above all names. God, that you are worthy to be praised. God, I thank you for hands that you gave us to do amazing things for your kingdom. But God, let us never forget in all the things that we do for your kingdom, one of the most important is we lift them up to you, Father. God, I'm lifting our hands, this sign of surrender to you. And so, God, I pray that as we sing those songs, I pray that as we get ready to work through this text, God, we will continue with our hands lifted. God, this sign of complete surrender to you. God, here we are. God, speak these words of truth into our life. God, where we need conviction, give it to us. God, where we need wisdom, give it to us this morning, Father. God, we pray this morning, God, our hands are lifted high to the name above all names because we are here to hear from you, God, to learn from you, God, honestly, to be changed by you this morning, Father. And so, God, I pray that you speak in a powerful way through these verses. God, I pray that we are ready to hear your word. And God, it may not always be easy. And God, there may be times when this word convicts us. But I pray, God, that for our good and for your glory, that that's what happens to us this morning, Father. God, let us seek your face. Let us hear your word this morning, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Most of you probably are familiar, with, at least in name, with a guy named Muhammad Ali. And his boxing career lasted from the early 1960s to, to 1981. I realize that was before most of you were ever born. But you've probably at least heard of his name. You may have saw he, he uh, got to light the Olympic torch several years ago. Uh, and so he's been the, kind of this icon in the sports world, and especially in the boxing world. He, he's known for these uh, really high-profile pro fights when he uh, had several fights against Sonny listening. He, he fought Joe Frazier and you may heard the names of the Thriller in Manila and the, the Rumble in the Jungle against George Foreman and these big mega super fights that have kind of uh, been throughout history and throughout his career and how he's uh, kind of been this world champion over and over and over again. So most of us know him for his boxing career. Something that I found out about him that I didn't know is he actually has two Grammy nominations. Right? When I think of Muhammad Ali, I don't think of a Grammy star, all right? But he has two Grammy nominations, no wins, but two Grammy nominations. His first one uh, came back in 1963, back when he was known as a guy named Cassius Clay, uh, before he became the heavyweight champion of the world and uh, before he switched religions and, and, and he was kind of making his way up through the ranks. And so he was a boxer. He had started his boxing career, but he wasn't the champion yet. And oddly enough, in 1963, he, he was nominated for this album. It was a spoken word or a rap album. And some even say this is the precursor of hip-hop music. And you take that for what you wanted to. But he, he was nominated. And the, the name of his album was very simple. 
I am the greatest. That was the name of the album. Not only was that the name of the album, that was the name of the first track of the album, which was followed by the second track of the album, which I find even better. I am the double greatest. Right? I don't know how you become the double greatest, but if you got track two, you got to have the, tra- the second track to it. Right? And, and so he has this album. This, is, this becomes his tagline and his catchphrase. And in every interview he does in boxing or whatever, he gladly proclaims that I am the greatest. And then he strings a, bunch, a whole bunch of trash talk along with it. Now he, he predicts which rounds he's going to knock somebody down in and, and all this stuff. But it's so interesting to me that, that even before he was the greatest... He told you he was the greatest. Even before he was fighting for the championship, he was telling you that he was the greatest. In fact, he, that even became one of his other tag signs. I was the greatest even before I was the greatest. Right? And so he bragged about this, and, and it just kind of overwhelmed who he was. And so uh, even months before he was fighting for the heavyweight champion of the world, he was claiming to be the greatest, even though there was somebody else that was actually holding the title at the time. And he claimed to be the greatest, even though he lost the title at times. And so clearly... Muhammad Ali was a man who was so full of pride. He had such an inflated ego of himself and, and such a big picture of himself that it, not just, it wasn't just wrapped up in his persona of a boxer. It really took over his whole life. He began to think that, that he had special treatment, that the rules shouldn't apply to him, that, that he should be able to do whatever he wanted to. And I read a story this week about him going to, uh, on an airplane. And you know, if you've ever been on an airplane, they make that announcement that we're getting ready for takeoff, so if you buckle your seatbelt, put your tray table up. And so he got on the airplane, and when he got on the airplane, of course he was sitting first class before the plane got loaded before everybody else got in their seats he looked at everybody who come down the aisle and he's like i'm the greatest i am the greatest and then he finally stood up and made this huge announcement right before the pilot makes his announcement i am the greatest and then the flight attendant walks by and says mr ali we're going to need you to sit down and we're going to need you to put your seatbelt on sir and he looked at her and he said superman doesn't need a seatbelt and then I love her comment back to him because she looked back at him and said without missing a beat, Superman also doesn't need an airplane. You need to sit down and buckle your seatbelt. You see, sometimes we become so prideful that we actually kind of lose who we are. We forget that our abilities are limited. We forget our identity. And we forget that we may think we're the greatest and we may think we're Superman, But if we were, we wouldn't need a seatbelt at all because we wouldn't need an airplane to fly. You see, sometimes we lose our identity because our identity is defined by ourselves. Our identity is is who we made ourselves out to be either in our eyes or in the eyes of everybody else. And we really lose the true sense of who we really are. And this seems to be the problem of Diotrephes when, he, when he's talked about in these verses. And he talks about him uh, just in these three short verses. And really the first two address him and the third one is about him. Uh, but in John chapter, or in 3 John verse 9, uh, John tells us a couple things about him. He gives us a couple of these traits that show that he really is this toxic narcissist. And, and so uh, you should not probably uh, realize that this is the only time in the whole New Testament this guy is mentioned. This is it. You can read the entire New Testament, and this is the only place you will see his name. So if you're sitting there, you're scratching your head, you're like, I've never even heard of this guy, you, you're fine. Right? In fact, if you, I looked up several Bible dictionaries this week to try to figure out more about him, and you know what every one of them said? He's an arrogant, prideful Christian that is addressed in John chapter, or the, in 3 John. That's it. 
That's all the information we have for him. Right? So let me give you this word of warning that's a side note. Right? 2,000 years later, guess what the only thing we know about this guy is? He's an arrogant, prideful Christian. And now, listen, I don't know if you think about your reputation lasting 2,000 years or not. I don't know if you think you're that important. But this guy's reputation has lasted over 2,000 years because we're reading about him in Scripture. And the only thing we have is that he's this arrogant, prideful guy. Listen, your reputation that you're building now will go much further than you think it will go. That's not even in your notes. That's not even one of my points. That's just a side note, all right? So just make a, make a mental note of that. The, the reputation you are building now, you need to pay attention to it because thousands of years later, somebody may be reading about you, and what is it you want them to read? Probably not what this guy was wanting them to read. This is probably not how he wanted his name to be recorded in history. And so John gives us the only information we know about him. And the first thing that John says in verse 9, or one of the things that he says in John 9, is that this guy loves to have first place among them. He says, I wrote to the church, but this guy loves to have first place among them. He loves to be in the spotlight. He loves to, to have center stage. He, he loves to everybody to know him and acknowledge him. He loves that he, he wants to be the guy that when he walks in a room, everything else stops, and everybody turns and pays attention to him. And, and some of you, uh, hopefully you're not this person, but some of you have been in, in rooms with these type of people. You've been in meetings with these type of people that, that regardless of what the meeting is, somehow it comes back to them. That regardless of what the topic of the conversation is, somehow it comes back to them. And maybe you've even had private conversations with people that, that you can start telling them about your life, and all of a sudden, before you realize that they're telling you about their life and how their life is so much harder than yours and, and worse than yours and, and that's that non-aggressive narcissist that that like somehow that conversation immediately reverts back to you and, and then somehow if there's a good idea brought up in a meeting it's their idea and maybe you've been in meetings where this is the guy and this is the the person that, that everything has to revolve around them they're not going to leave that meeting or that conversation until they've made their opinion known and not only known but it's heard over everybody else but see, the wording that John uses here makes it clear that he's really going beyond that. He's really going to this extreme prideful situation. And that's, that's bad enough, but he goes beyond this. He says, really, this guy has lost his true sense of identity. He refers to him by using a Greek word that means he's the loved or he loves the preeminence, which means he loves to be supreme and superior to everyone else. Now, the reason this is interesting, the word that John uses here, is because the word that he uses is rooted in a word that's only used one other time in the New Testament. It's only used in Colossians when Paul is describing Christ. And it's only used when he's telling us about the superiority of Christ. And Paul describes Jesus in the book of Colossians in chapter 1, verse 15. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. And he has first place over all creation. He is superior and supreme to all of creation. And that's the only other time in the New Testament this word is used. And so what John is making clear is this guy's pride is so big that not only does he want to be superior and saw above everybody else, he wants to be in the place of Christ. That he feels like his proper position is equal with or superior with Christ. Now I want to share with you this morning that anytime that is your position, anytime you think or you want people to think that you are equal with Christ, that you want them to admire you or revere you with Christ, then you have become a distraction from the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ himself. That your pride is becoming a huge problem for the church. And sometimes we find people in churches and we find churches that build themselves around people so much 
that the person becomes the key figure of the church, that the person becomes the central aspect of the church. And as much as there are some great men who lead churches, there are some great men who fit this category because they built the church around who they are and their personality. And if you don't think it's a problem, then look at when that person falls. Look at when that person has to deal with an issue and look how that person, uh, when that person has to step away from that ministry, either voluntarily or involuntarily, what happens to that church. There's a great mega church in, in a in a huge city in, in America uh, that just a few years ago, man, they were thriving. They were going, uh, man, they were blowing the rooftop off of it. And all of a sudden they found out their pastor was dealing with some things that he shouldn't have been dealing with. He was dealing uh, in some things that he shouldn't have been dealing in. And all of a sudden they begin to question maybe he shouldn't be our leader. And when he had to involuntarily step down from that ministry position, do you know what happened to this mega church? Thousands of members? It dissolved into nothing. You know what that tells me about that church? Their pastor was more important to them than Jesus was. Their pastor was their key central figure of their church. And so here's my warning for all of us sitting in these pews and watching online. Your pastor or your, your Sunday school teacher or your gospel project teacher or your Awana leaders, none of them should be the preeminent one. None of them should be the only voice that you hear. None of them are more important than the central theme of the church. And so listen, as, as humans, as people, as Christians, and as church and church leaders, our prayer should always be that people fall more in love with Christ than they do with us. That, that Christ should be the preeminent one and not us. We should all join with John the Baptist in praying that he should increase and that we should decrease. And anytime we take our eyes off of him, anytime that a church becomes more attached to their leader or their worship team, or their praise team, or their sports ministry, or any time a church becomes more attached to something except Christ, is a church that's setting themselves up for failure. Because those things are not meant to be first place. This guy was not meant to be first place in this church. He was not meant to be that. Christ alone was meant to be in that position. Anytime we take our eyes off of him, and we put our eyes on something else, and regardless of how good it is, it sets us up for major problems in the church and it sets us up for the problem with people around us. Because what happens is that we become a church and we become people that are so prideful, we become unteachable. That we don't realize that we don't know all the answers. I had a, a soccer player back when I was coaching high school soccer and he was a good player. He had some good skills. He was able to control the ball pretty well. He was able to shoot. He had a very powerful shot, and, uh, and he could turn. With it. Once he got the ball, he could make a twist and a turn and make a quick shot on the goal. And he was a good player. I'm not going to question that. But he was not a great player. And I'll tell you why. Because when you have a good player on your team, and some of you guys that have done with sports and, and coached sports, you kind of know this. When you have a good player on your team, it doesn't take very long for the other team to figure out, hey, that's the good player on this team. And if you only have one, that's a problem, right? Because what happens is, and as every coach will tell you, if I know that team only has one good player, then guess what my defensive strategy is? We're going to make sure that player doesn't get the ball. Right? So if your whole offensive strategy is to funnel the ball through this one guy, then they shut that one guy down, and you're not scoring any goals, and you're not winning any games. And so it doesn't take long for the opponents to figure out that one good player can ruin the rest of the team. And so when you're a coach, you have to kind of think about this. Their defense knows this is our good player. They're going to be on this. They're going to double-team this one player. They're going to know this is our weapon. This is what we're going to 
So what you have to do as a coach is you have to rethink your kind of offensive strategy. You have to come up with other weapons to use. You have to put that person out of the central position of your offense, and you have to move them to a supportive position in your offense. And so we had this guy. He was a young guy. He was a high school student, and he was a good player, man. He had the skills to make those shots, but everybody knew it. And so they would double-team him, and when he got the ball, they made sure that, that he wasn't going to get that quick shot off. And so we begin to realize that we can't put him first and central. What we have to do is we have to back him up. We, instead of him being the one taking the shots, we have to let him be the one feeding other players to get the shots. So we restructured and we, we kind of put players in different positions. And, and instead of him being out front, he was more uh, kind of in the second line. And so we kind of worked through this in practice, and we, we put cones out, and we put players, and we walked through all of this on the field, and, and we begin to kind of say, hey, look at your options. Look at where you can pass. Look at all these different places where all these different people are, and you've got a shot there, and you've got a shot there. And if we, if we move the ball like this, we can get all this stuff. And all of a sudden, we don't just have one good player. We've got several players that can all be in a position to score. And so I'll never forget that we worked through this whole practice, and it was one of those good practices. Like everybody was on board, like, yes, we got this. Like, this is going to be our key to win the next game. And then after the practice, the guy walked up to me, and the good player walked up to me, and he goes, I'm confused. And I said, Okay, where did we lose you at? Like, where do you not see yourself in? And he goes, Well, who feeds me the ball? And I said, What do you mean, who feeds you the ball? Who's going, to, who's going to pass the ball to me so that I can turn and score? And I said, I think you, you're right. You are confused because you missed the whole practice that we've just been doing. Your goal in this offense is not to score. Your job in this offense is to feed other people so they can score. Nobody's feeding you the ball to turn and shoot. They're feeding you the ball so you can distribute it to somebody else. And so we've got more weapons on the field than just you. And I'll never forget, he looked at me he's like, well, that makes no sense at all. I don't understand why in the world you would put me here versus up front. And then I looked at our scoring chart and I said, you want me to see? You want me to show you why? Because in the last three games, you've been double teamed and you haven't scored and we haven't won in the last three games. There's a problem. You see, uh, the reason I'd say he was a good player and not a great player is because great players realize they don't know everything and they cannot be the only weapon on the field. Great players are teachable, even if sometimes they don't have the best coaches in the world. Good players can have all the skills they need, but they'll never be a great player if they're unteachable, if they're unwilling to be used in different positions and unwilling to, to, to sense and kind of reshape what they are and, and how they work. And the same was true for this guy that's mentioned here in verse 9. He, he says in verse 9 that we already know that he loves to be first place among them. So he's kind of my good player. He loves to be out front. But then I want you to notice what else he says about him in verse 9. He says, John says, I wrote things to the church, but this guy loves to be first place among them, and he did not receive us. A different translation would say that he was not willing to accept what we said, or he did not acknowledge our authority. And so this guy, he, he doesn't hear what John says. He doesn't want to hear what John says, and, and he doesn't value what John says. Now I want to think for just a moment about that statement. Here's a guy who's mentioned one time in the whole New Testament. In the whole Bible, we mention his name one time. Now, just by sheer numbers, if you go back and read the Gospels, 
you're going to find the name of John a whole lot of times. In fact, one of the, he wrote one of them himself, okay? So he knows this is a guy who, who is not just one of the 12 disciples. He's one of the inner three that, that gets to see Jesus in every aspect of his life. Like he, for three years of his life, he has literally walked everywhere that Jesus walked. He, he's been everywhere that Jesus has been. He's heard all the words that Jesus said. He's been at the table with Jesus during the Last Supper. He, he, he knew the crucifixion was coming. He knew the resurrection. He knew all of these things because he'd been with Jesus all this time. And you read through the Gospels. And in fact, you can read the one he wrote and how deep and profound this guy's understanding of who Jesus was. And if there was anybody that we should value who they were telling us and what they were telling us about Jesus, it should have been John. But this guy pushes him off to the side and he says, Listen, you have nothing new for us. You have nothing to teach us. You have every, we have everything we need from you. And so he pushes John's writing aside. He pushes his, his instructions aside. He says, you have no authority here because we already know everything we need to know. We already have everything that we need to have. You see, a true narcissist thinks that they have it all figured out. They think they're superior to everyone. And so no one else has value or anything to teach them. No one else can, can add value to anything they already understand because they've become so unteachable. You want to see a quick test of a toxic narcissist person? Look how quickly they listen and how quickly they try to learn something new. You see, a true narcissist, a true toxic narcissist will never challenge their current level of knowledge or information and they'll never let you challenge it either. And so they will, they will never challenge their current level of knowledge because to challenge where they are at and the knowledge they have would be an admission that they don't know everything. And so while that sounds harsh and while we read this text, and like I said, this is one of those moments where it's real easy to read a text and we read about this guy we're like, dude, how could you not want to listen to John? How could you reject what John says? But the truth is, if we're all a little bit honest with ourselves, if we're all a little bit honest with the Holy Spirit in this moment, that some of us may be doing the exact same thing. Some of us may be a little more narcissistic than we would like to admit. And we may not call ourselves that, but the truth is that we, some of us will come in and will join us on a Sunday morning and will join online for a Sunday morning and we'll sit and we'll watch maybe for an hour, an hour and a half, and then we'll check a little box off and be like, yep, we did our worship this week, we're done. And then we won't pick up John's words again until next week. And then we'll come back in and we'll check another little box. And so we'll spend all week rejecting the words of John and rejecting the words of the Holy Spirit. We don't read the Bible for ourselves. We don't join the Gospel Project class. We don't join the other small groups. And, and when we don't do those things, we're doing exactly what these guys were doing. We're rejecting the inspired Word of God. We're rejecting the authority that comes with it. We're rejecting the, the all that it has. We're rejecting the wisdom of people who have studied this Word before us. And what we're really doing is we're saying, and hey, listen, I'm good in the Jesus category. I don't need any more Jesus. You see, while none of us are comfortable labeling ourselves as a narcissist, none of us would say, hey, I'm unteachable because I know everything. Yet sometimes in our lives we practice that same thing. Because we don't take God's word. We don't take the authority that comes with it. And we just push it off to the side just like this guy was doing with Jesus. So some of us, maybe if we're honest with ourselves and honest with the Holy Spirit, that maybe, just maybe... We're a little more unteachable than we would like to admit. And so we come up, when we find ourselves to be prideful, when we find ourselves to be unteachable, the next step that we take as a narcissist is we begin to be threatened by those that are around us. 
And so we begin to see them as a target and we begin to start to try to tear them down instead of trying to build them up. We become so isolated and we become so deprived in what we think is going on here that we see our job as tearing each other down. And this becomes where uh, this, uh, uh, even if it means we use deceptive means as possible, we, we find excuses why we don't want to pick up the Bible. We find excuses why we don't want to... Um, join the gospel project, or why we don't want to join the small groups, why we don't want to read the Bible even for ourselves. We have all these excuses, and what it really comes down to is, I don't value what this says. You see, because even in all of our excuses, maybe we start tearing people down. Well, I don't like the way this person does that. I don't like the way this person says that. I just don't like the way this person teaches this class. And, and I hear it sometimes as a pastor. Well, I just don't like the way this pastor says this. I just don't like the way this pastor says that. I just don't like the way this church worships. And the sad thing, you know what my answer to those responses are? You know how many churches there are in Cleveland alone? There's like a 12 within a one-mile district of Cleveland. So if you don't like this pastor, go find another one. Right? I've told you before, we're not the only church in town. I think we're the best one because we got the best worship team and everybody else is the best. The pastor's not the best, but we got the best everything else. Right? But we're not the only church in town, so quit trying to tear other people down for your excuse of why you are so unteachable. Because the reality is it's you and not everybody else. But for this guy, it's everybody else's fault. He becomes so unteachable that he begins to tear each other down, and he begins to even use these deceptive means. He knows that people are going to respect and value John, and this causes a problem for him because if if they like what John says and they value John, then that means he's not as important anymore, that he's not going to have as much influence anymore. And so I'm just going to kind of give you a warning. Anytime a pastor points you away from other pastors, anytime a pastor or a church leader kind of says this is all you should be reading, this is all you should be knowing, then they're doing just this. What they're doing is they're shielding you from everybody else who you may say, hey, I like that guy. Hey, I like what this person says. Listen, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, you need to be reading other pastors. You need to be reading other sermons. You need to be watching other places online. And, and, and you may find yourself fitting somewhere else, and that's fine. But you need to understand this, that our job is to build each other up, not to tear each other down. And so what this guy does is he finds that the best way to stop John's influence is to discredit who John is. And so we find if we look in verse 10... What he says in verse 10, John is done with this. He's ready to confront this. In verse 10, he says, This is why, if I come, I will remind him of the works he is doing, slandering us with malicious words. We'll finish that verse in just a second. But it's a beautiful thing that in Greek, John uses this metaphor. He says what this guy's doing, and this is a metaphor. He says he's talking big bubbles of words, right? Which means his words are just like a bubble. They are hollow. They have no value to them. They are empty on the end. There's no substance behind what they are. They're useless and they come of no value. They add of no value of what's really going on. And really what he's doing, he's spreading these vindictive false rumors about John. These unfounded, intentional, deceitful rumors. They're not based on fact at all. Modern psychologists call this the leveling approach. That what you want to do if you're a narcissist, if you're looking to be first place, is you take out everybody else who's on a level above you. And so you take them out so they become on your level or below you. And when you lower them down, it elevates you up. You look better if everybody else looks bad. right? If you want to find a narcissist, find somebody who talks bad about other people behind their back. Find about somebody who, who is always saying negative things about somebody else. You see a true narcissist 
If they cannot control you, they will try to control the way that people think about you. And they will try to control what other people say about you and think about you. Because they can't control you, they'll control those around you. And so they'll start spreading false information. They'll, they'll start talking behind your back or your co-friend or your friends or your co-workers back. And they'll start spreading this information that's not true at all. And their whole reason is because they want to shade the way that people see that person. And so if you've got a coworker, if you've got a friend who all they do is talk about other people, let me give you a secret. If they're talking about other people to you, guess what they're doing about you? They're probably doing the exact same thing. If they will talk about other people behind their back to you, then they'll talk about you behind your back to other people. And so there's this test of the narcissism of how often someone talks bad about other people. But there's a warning here for us, and I want you to hear this warning, that, that if you are not the toxic person starting the rumor, then don't be the toxic person who continues the rumor. Don't be the one who carries on and continues spreading the information. You see, this guy is guilty because he is very honestly, he is, he is clearly the one who's the source of the false information. But see, the information doesn't stop there. He's spreading these things. It means he's telling them and other people are telling them. And so if you're not the source of the bad information, don't be the spreader of bad information. One thing I like to tell folks all the time is I don't have time to talk about other people. I have time to talk to other people. You want to end a fight really quick? Then look at whoever's complaining to you and be like, Hey, listen, I understand you're upset about this. But instead of talking about this person... Why don't we go talk to this person? Oh, well, no, it's, it's really not that big of a deal. All of, a sudden, all of a sudden, their attitude changed. Like, they'll be so aggressive and so upset about it. And so, this has to change. And Michael, you're the pastor of the church. You need to go fix this right now. And I'm like, listen, I understand. I, I, hear, I hear you're upset about this. But why don't we call that person? Why don't you and me and them, why don't we sit down together? And I'll let you talk. And I'll just sit there and listen. Oh, no, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to cause confrontation. No, what you want to do is you want to talk about people behind their back. You want to cause a pot and stir a pot without addressing the source of the information. Go to the source of the information. If you've got an issue, don't go to a third party. Don't start questioning other people. If you have an issue with a ministry or a ministry leader or even me as your pastor, come to me. Go to that person. Go to the source of who you have to struggle with. It's what Christ teaches in Matthew chapter 18. That if you have something against your brother first, go to them. Then if they don't listen, take two or three others with you. Right? But it always starts with going to them. And so our warning in this text is if we're not the source of the bad information, don't be the spreader of the bad information. Don't fall into the trap of the toxic narcissist who's trying to spread all this disinformation, who's trying to spread all these false rumors. John, is, is, he wants to be clear. He wants to confront the source of this. He doesn't want to go to this third party. Do you hear what John says? He says, listen, if I come... You better believe I'm going to call him out. He and I are going to sit down and have a conversation. You see, this guy doesn't want to talk to John. He won't even read what John wrote. But this guy says, when I come, I'm going to go have face-to-face with him. You see, for us as Christians, our job is to not talk about people. It's to talk to people. We should go to the person instead of continuing the rumors. Go straight to the source and talk to that person. Because when we don't, we find ourselves meeting this, this next quality. And really the devastating part of it is we find that we become a hindrance to the ministry and the mission instead of involving ourselves in the ministry and the mission. You see, we can talk about people. Instead of talking to people, we end up hindering what God is trying to do in and through those people. And this has a devastating effect 
that the toxic, prideful person can have, not just in a church, but in a relationship. They become a distraction from the mission of Christ, and they hinder the spread of the gospel. See, in, in verse 9, he first tells us uh, that he is spreading these malicious rumors and these malicious lies and these terrible things about him. And then he goes on in, at the end of the verse, he says, And he was not only refused to welcome the brothers himself, but he even stops those who wants to do so and expels them from church. And John says, listen, as bad as this is, that he's making up all these rumors, he's spreading all these false rumors about me, and then he won't even welcome the brothers. And the brothers there is referring to traveling missionaries. The brothers are, are people that John has trained and disciples that John has taught. And he started sending them to different areas. Right? He became a disciple maker, which is what God has called all of us to do. Be disciple makers and send them out. And in those days when you traveled, you, you traveled as a missionary or as a traveling pastor or even as a Christian, you looked for other Christians to stay with. It was safer and protected you and protected your reputation. And so this guy knows, hey, this is a disciple of John. We're not going to have anything to do with him. I refuse to welcome him, which means I refuse to show hospitality to him. I refuse to welcome him in my house. I refuse to, to make my resources available for him. It's this direct contradiction and the attitude to what we see in 1 Peter 4, verse 9, where he says, be hospitable to one another without complaining. And he says, listen, I'm not going to let these people come in. I'm not going to acknowledge them. I'm not going to have anything to do with them. And I, not only that, but you can't do it either. And so we find this abuse of power in what this guy is doing because he not only is he's not going to welcome them in, but he says, if you do it, I'm going to kick you out of church. If you welcome these people, then you have no part in what we are doing here. Now, this sounds very strange to us. It sounds very odd to us that somebody would take this step, but you've got to realize where he's at and what he's trying to do. He's trying to control not just the situation, but all the people as well. And so he's using this threat of, hey, if you welcome them, then you're not one of us. Have you ever heard that in a church? Are you one of us or are you one of them? Are you one of us or do you belong to that group over there? Do you come to our Bible study or do you belong to that Bible study over there? Isn't it a shame that we've got so many divisions that we want to divide ourselves up in teams and yet we refuse to acknowledge and be hospitable, even be kind and welcoming to those that are on the same team that we are. You see, what he's doing is he's shrinking the church. He's tightening the belt. And instead of expanding the church and growing the church, what is he doing? He's trying to cut people out of the church. He's expelling them and saying they, they're no part of us. That we, he, and like a better terms, he excommunicates them and says, you can't be with us if you're with them. You choose your team and it's either them or it's us. And if I find this guy standing at your house overnight because he was a traveling Christian, then you need, might as well pack up and go with him because you're not one of us. And he divides and he, he separates the church. And when he does this, he causes a great hardship for those that are traveling. He causes them to either travel further or sleep on the street because they don't have any place there to sleep. And their, their goal was to go to find a house. And when they found a house, you opened your house to them. You made sure they had dinner that night. You made sure they had breakfast the next morning. You made sure they're all they were taken care of. And then you sent them on their way. But all of a sudden, if you come to a town and the town doesn't welcome you, then you've got to move on to the next town. And so you slow down the gospel because all of a sudden you've got to walk slower and you've got to rest, you've got to find food, and you've got to all do all of this stuff. And so what he's actually doing, without intentionally doing it, he's slowing the spread of the gospel. He's so consent, or so solid on who he is and not allowing any kind of body else to be an influence to this church that if he can't be number one, then nobody can be number one. And if nobody can be number one, that means the gospel stops here. 
We're not looking to bring new people into this church because we got some people here that we don't even like. We want to get rid of the ones that we do have. And so he expels people. He slows the spread of the gospel. And so when we kind of find ourselves wrapping up with where does this come from? Why does someone act this way? And we get our answer in the last verse that we're going to look at this morning in verse 11. In verse 11 he says, Dear friends, do not imitate what is evil. But what is good? The one who does good is of God. And the one who does evil has not seen God. You see, John writes this letter. And I told you that we, several weeks ago we talked about this guy named Gaius. And Gaius is in the first part of the letter, the first probably eight, chapter, eight verses. And Gaius is the good. He's, he's the one who is doing good. And he's the one who's of God. And then he says, but there's this other guy. And this other guy is doing evil. And this other guy is this clear contrast that these two are polar opposites. And this other guy has not seen God. And the word that he uses for seen is not seen with your visible eyes. It's seen in an experimental or a, an experienced kind of way. It means that you have not experienced God. It means you don't have a relationship with Him. You see, the reason that a narcissist acts the way they do is because they lack a relationship with the God who created them. They lack a relationship with the one who is bigger and mightier than them. They lack a relationship with this God who has the ultimate authority because to, to acknowledge that He is the ultimate authority would be to acknowledge that I am not the real authority. You see, it takes humility for us to sing how great is our God. It takes humility to sing that He is the name above all names. It takes humility for us to come to Him in grace and mercy. It takes humility for us to come to Him and beg and plead for forgiveness. Why? Because that's what we're required of salvation. And so it takes humility for us to realize and admit that we did something wrong. And if you're never willing to admit that you were wrong then you never need a Savior. If you never need a Savior, then you never understand the greatness of God and how far away from Him you are. You see, someone who is so prideful, someone who's busy tearing each other down, someone who is busy trying to control everybody else and what everybody else thinks about them, doesn't realize they are not the ones in charge. They do not know the one in charge. They do not see Him. And so they begin to have a very different worldview. Their view is so centered on themselves. They can't step back and see the bigger picture. For the past few weeks, we've been working in the book of Job and how big and vast our God is. A narcissist thinks there is no God or that they are that God. They can't step back and see, wow, there's a God that's much bigger than I am. There's a God who offers grace and mercy. There's a God who offers forgiveness through the cross of Jesus Christ. If only I would humble myself and come to Him. You see, the reason that someone goes to these extremes is because they don't know the God that we know. And shame on us for knowing the God that we know, having been saved by the God that we are saved by, and yet still acting like we don't know Him. Not being corrected by Him. Not seeing the authority of His Word. Not thinking of others more than we think of ourselves. Not letting the attitude of Christ be the same attitude that's us. Who we would be willing to do anything because He did everything for us. You see, I told you when we started this passage, there would be these moments of self-reflection. These moments of self-examination. And my prayer is honestly that we've worked through this text. And my prayer is that all of us could sit here and be like, yeah, that was a terrible guy. But you know what? Maybe, just maybe, as we've worked through some of these texts and we've worked through some of these characteristics of Him, that maybe, just maybe, we found ourselves just a shade more like this guy than we want to admit. 
Maybe we find ourselves a little more prideful than we should be. Maybe we find ourselves maybe just unteachable. Maybe we find ourselves either tearing people down intentionally or maybe we find ourselves tearing each other down because we didn't go to the source. We talked about people instead of two people. Maybe we found ourselves hindering the mission because we were too busy trying to figure out what team we wanted to be on instead of seeing the gospel is so much bigger than this church and any church that's around us. And maybe, just maybe, you've come to the point where you've saw these traits in your life and you realize this is the reason that my life is difficult. You see, the reason that a narcissist, it seems that he enjoys it. That video says it's a disease that, that everybody else suffers for except that person. Can I share with you, that person suffers And if you've read, if you've seen this in your life, you know that the reason you have to be number one is a constant battle. It's not worth it. You know why? Because you were never designed to be number one. You were always meant to be number two. To let Him be first in your life. And so for some of you, you've been chasing the spotlight. For some of you, maybe here this morning watching online, you've been chasing the center stage. You've been trying to, to control everybody else around you. And you've just reached this point of exhaustion. And it's so tiring. You're just worn out. Maybe today is the day that you realize you're fighting for something that was never meant to be fought for in the first place. Why? You just give Him first place in your life. And you accept His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. And see how different your life is from this moment on. Let's pray together.